We like when our kids have friends, especially Christian friends. Those of us raising our kids with uh, another family that shares our values and our biblical worldview are always, you know, we play off of each other. And when we, you will count that for uh, forever, the value of those other Christian families um, raising their kids alongside of yours. And sometimes we have to help our kids in the process of what to do when a friendship is less than healthy. There's a, you know, there's a phrase out there about relationships being toxic. When our daughter went to college, she spent her second semester in college down at the Disney program, and she worked with uh, the college program at Disney in Orlando and had a great time there. Made a great friend. These two had a wonderful time. They shared uh, a lot of common uh, delights. They both were in sync fans. They went to concerts together. It was great. And their friendship became so strong that this girl who was from Louisiana actually, when she went back to college, chose to come up to St. Cloud so she could go to the same school that Denea went to. It was wonderful. There was one thing I noticed when I went down to pick them up in the college program, to pick Tanea up from the college program, I had the privilege of sitting with her, this friend, and about three other college-age kids who were part of the college program, and we went out to eat together. All these girls were there, and I didn't really know any of them, but there's one thing that I noticed. This particular friend of Tanea's, if this girl over here said something... The next comment was made by her about how she relates to that, or she had a better story than that, or she had something. And then another girl would say something, and the next comment was followed about this girl about something about her life. It either pertained to that, or she changed the topic completely. And another girl would say something, and it was back to this girl. And I watched through the entire meal as everything, everything kept coming back to her. And she kept trying to bring the focus back to her. It always had to be about her. Never once, when somebody else said something, did she say, hey, tell us more about that. Never happened. Now we've got to talk about me again. Well, my daughter was willing to put up with that, and, and now it's fine. She understood, okay, so she's kind of wrapped up in herself. What my daughter didn't understand was coming down the road was somewhere along the line... My daughter apparently did something offensive to this friend, and the friend quit talking to her. For two or three years, she sought to reconnect and establish a relationship with this friend, who she really did enjoy, but this friend would never speak to her again. And to this day, she has no idea what went down. And so we've had a number of conversations about this. And that's the kind of relationship that you come to understand is unhealthy. That's toxic. That the entire friendship is based upon her and how you behave relative to her. And that's all she was looking for. I had to tell Danae, I said, honey, I guarantee you, you are not the first one she's done this to, and you are not the last one she will do it to. Unless something changes in her life, she will leave a wake of confused and hurt people behind her who did not live up to her standards. So as parents, we understand we want our kids to have friends, but we want them to be in healthy relationships that are valuable going in each direction. 
Well, we're going to return to Hebrews chapter 11 today, and we are going to make a second observation on this chapter. We're actually going to be in some verses we've been in before. We're just going to take a, a, a little different observation on them about faith and its place in our relationship with God. Now, one can assume, just as we teach our children what a healthy relationship looks like, that when God seeks to enter into a relationship with us, this one who desires so much to be in relationship with us, this one who, within the Trinity, we sang about the Trinity earlier, there is this perfect communion of Father, Son, and Spirit in, in, in the Trinity so that relate, that relationship is always perfect, other than when Christ hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can assume that God would want to establish a healthy relationship with us. He would ex- we would expect that that's what is being established here. Well, as we come back to the text, I want to make just a couple of observations. We're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. We're going to pick up verses 4 to 6. It's, it's Hebrews reviewing some famous people of the Old Testament. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. And you know the contrast between Cain and Abel. We don't have time to go look at it. The contrast between them is, is Abel brought an offering that was pleasing to the Father. It was one that he could receive. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And then quoting from Genesis, it was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so now here is this other interesting character that we have this very brief statement about. A guy by the name of Enoch who never suffered death as you and I expect we will suffer it. The Bible says God took him. He was not because God took him. And it dealt with how God was pleased. This text clarifies for us that God was pleased with, with Enoch. And then it goes on to say, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. First, let's just note faith as it relates to our relationship with God. Faith pleases the Father. Now, what we pointed out last week is that faith points us in the right direction. This week, we want to observe that faith pleases the Father. And what I would like to develop a little further out of these few verses is that God's expectations of faith are reasonable. They are reasonable. They're well within the bounds of what a healthy, dynamic relationship between God and his people would look like. Notice that he says in verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. First thing. 
must believe that he is. I cannot read that, and particularly knowing that this book is written to the Hebrews, I cannot read that without thinking about and finding my mind drawn immediately to Exodus chapter 3. This will not come up on the screen, so just relax, or if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. Exodus chapter 3, and this is that point that you'll be familiar with where God gets Moses' attention through a burning bush that is not consumed by the flame. He gets his attention, and he's calling him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said to God, verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, because he hasn't been there for quite a while now, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, famous, famous scripture, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Then when we come over to, uh, over to the New Testament, we find in John chapter 8, Another interesting statement. I'm going to layer these one on top of the other. John chapter 8, and I'm going to look in verse 37. And Jesus is in discussion in, uh, excuse me, am I in John chapter 9? No, you got me. Um, No, it is John 8. There we are. Okay, John chapter 8, verse 37. 57, that's what I want. I'm just contacts, people. This is what the problem is. All right, John 8, 57. Jesus is making some claims that they can't even grasp. There seems so outlandish about who he is and his relationship with some of these early believers of the Jews. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? You understand Abraham was about 18 centuries prior. You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, just on a side note, if anybody ever says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, you take him right here. Because he is clearly claiming that he is one with the Father in the burning bush, who said, who, do you, who shall I say sent, them, sent me? He says, I am. And Jesus takes that as a title for himself. And they understood it. Just a reminder, verse 59, then they took up stones to throw at him. They knew what he had just claimed for himself. The text here, back in Hebrews now, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. In God's statement of himself, in Jesus' statement of himself, that I am the one who is, it's a statement of the nature of God. That he is the eternal, self-existent one. That he is the one upon which all else that we see is contingent. That he is the, if you will, the first cause of what it is we see around us. He that comes to him must believe that he is. 
And it's not only this generic belief that, yeah, I believe that, you know, there's a God. No, he must believe that he is the God of Scripture, the God revealing himself redemptively throughout the millennia is the God who must be believed, the singular one. Because man has an incredible opportunity or ability to create all sorts of God in his own thinking, all sorts of gods, if you will, in his own thinking. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying he must believe that he is that it is the one revealed in Scripture is the one that he is coming to. That's the relationship. God is not going to share his identity with some false pagan God that does not exist. It's not real. God's not sharing that. And that's not unhealthy in a relationship for God to say to us, make sure you're clear on who I am. And he, as himself, has revealed himself. That's what Romans 1.20 says. It says, God, through the things which are made, he's revealed himself, even his eternal power and Godhead. His great I am, it can be known through the power of creation that we see around us. And whether we look at the nature of the cell and DNA and how that's put together and we see the magnificence of what is there or whether we look out on the universe which is beyond our capacity to understand all speak of the creator God who is. And he's the one we're called to believe. I found it interesting also in the earlier part of Hebrews chapter 1 that this is where the book of Hebrews Began to recall this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. That's that whole creative thing that we can look out on. He made them through his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So there's two things set forth here, and there's more that we could talk about. Time, we won't take the time to look at them. But there's two things we can see here in how God, this one who is, has revealed himself. One, through the creation around us, and two, through his Son, incarnate, who walked the face of the earth, took on flesh, set aside his prerogatives of godhood in order to be veiled in flesh. We will be celebrating this very shortly in what we call Christmas. Magnificent reality by which God has made himself known. And that's why Romans says, so that they're without excuse. God has revealed himself to the degree he can be known So much so that those who reject his revelation, whether through creation, whether through his son, the incarnation, or other means that are available, we will be held accountable for that. He's not asking us to believe something that's unrealistic. And so this aspect of whoever comes in must believe that he is, is an understanding of his nature, which he makes known. The second thing we need to believe 
is this, that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he is a rewarder. This is an understanding of his character, how he relates to us. James puts this before us, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That God is ready, if we are honestly, by faith, going to approach him, God is ready, honestly, to begin to engage us in life. Therefore, First Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That if we will put ourselves in right relationship to this creator God, and we will humble ourselves before him, he then, the dynamic of this relationship is such that he then will begin to work on our behalf. And he will begin to uplift us and show his direction, his plan, his work in our lives in due time. I think one way to boil this down in terms of that we must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him that we have to believe that he's well-intended towards us. Is that crazy that God would ask us to believe that? That he's well-intended? He might say, well, how do I know that he's well-intended towards me? Is this a problem? I can hear myself just fine. In fact, I'm going along thinking rapturous thoughts about, wow, this is amazing. And you're all thinking, you can't hear me. All right, how's that? Can we do that? Okay. We'll, we will have to do something about this. And of course, hang on. No. I just dropped it there. Okay, we're good. We're good. So, does he just ask us in a vacuum to understand he's well-intended towards us? Absolutely not. How do we know without a doubt that God is well-intended towards us? Hello, right here. Do we not know and understand that he gave his only begotten son so that what? So we can enter into this healthy relationship with him. Whereby he asks, asks us to believe that he is, that he is the God to be worshipped, not to buy into some pagan thing, not to buy into some man-made thing, but to understand and listen and pay attention that he is and that he's well intended towards us. He's revealed all of this for us. So his expectations of faith are reasonable. And I want us to just reflect on that for a brief moment. You see, friends, when it says that he that comes to him must believe that he is, as he has revealed, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that he's well intended towards us, as he has revealed. He's not set standards for us that will continually defeat us. Think about that. He's not set something forth before us that will continually defeat us. He has set something that is reasonable that we can understand and that we can attain. That he is, that he's well intended towards us and as we seek him. And I want to say that and make that clear best that I can because... There may be some people here, and this has not been my experience, but there may be some people here who perhaps have been raised by fathers who are tyrants. 
by fathers who, no matter how hard you try growing up, you never seem to be able to please dad. You never can quite get that word from dad that says, great job. I'm proud of you. I'm on your team. I am glad to call you my child. I am glad to be your father. God is not a tyrant. He has not set things out there that are impossible to attain to so he can continually, daily, constantly criticize us and tell us how terrible we are and that we're never going to make it. We're never going to live up to anything. We're never going to become anybody. We're never going to satisfy him. That's not what he's doing. He's revealing himself as one who is creator God of the universe, who wants to be in dynamic relationship with us, and will bring blessing to our lives if we will seek him as he is, because he's well intended towards us. And some of us, that doesn't compute, because our fathers were such tyrants. Our fathers were so impossible to please that we don't get that. So God's expectations of faith are reasonable. And if you sit here today and you identify with this idea of a father being a tyrant, I pray that God will free you from that, from the brokenness of your father, and that you will cling to the reality of a heavenly father who is no tyrant in your experience and who wants to bring wholeness and healing and blessedness into your life as you continue to seek him. Just a thought. God's expectation of faith are reasonable, and God's commendations of faith are eternal. Latter part of this chapter, again, we looked at it last week. I want to return to it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, after mentioning so many people, not all, we're not done with the chapter, who uh, operated by a faith life and demonstrated these things, we read in verse 13, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, who were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Just this idea that God called them. God's at work within them. They could have looked back and said, you know, I kind of like the way it was before. But in faith, they looked ahead and said, I kind of like what God has promised for me. And they kept seeking it. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Now notice this. We didn't comment on this last week. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. In Exodus chapter 3, when God first revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses, and he's calling out to him from the bush, he said, who are you? He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was pleased to identify himself as their God In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, we read, we looked at that earlier, many, many weeks ago now. 
We looked at that where it said that we are one with Jesus, and he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Is that a wonderful truth? That he is pleased to identify as our God? Think about that. That he is pleased to look here. He's pleased to look on this, on this group of believers who are here with joy, with pride, with delight, and say, I am their God. I am in dynamic relationship with them. And this pleases me because they are walking with me in faith. And they are mine. Some of us can't identify with that kind of joy. I cannot. My father was in our home, uh, but he did not know how to connect with his children. I did one thing in my life that I tried to do to, in order to, I know I did, I was trying to please my father. I played the violin from fifth grade through ninth grade because my dad wanted me to play the violin and how incredible it would be for my life. You know, if you're going to learn how to play the violin, you have to actually go practice. And do you know what practice means? You're not with people. I could practice 10 minutes and I had to go be with people. That's so why I knew my, my son, Matt, was never going to become the musician that his sister and brothers are. Because he had to be with people. I got it. I understood that. But I was trying to please my father and keep him happy. And then there was a final concert in ninth grade. And I did not do well in that concert. And he knew it. He never again encouraged me to play violin. I didn't play it in 10th grade. But you know what? To this day, that's a point of shame to me. That I shamed my father because I didn't do well in that concert. I feel that. The flip side is this. We had education pushed in our home because my parents never had much and never expected much. They thought education was the way out of this trap. So we had education pushed in our home. I was the youngest of five children. Got my degree from the University of Illinois. Came time for graduation. My parents didn't want to go. Wait a second. You're the ones who pushed education for us. Parents didn't want to go. Been to some of those before. They're long. They're boring. The speakers are boring. We've got to travel three hours to get there. Do you mind if we don't go? Yes, I mind. Will you please come? I realize you maybe were bored for the other kids. Come be bored for me. So they came. It was not as joyful as it might have been, because I knew they didn't really want to be there. But they came. A number of years later, I'm getting a graduate degree. I'm going to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. There's three graduates, three of us who have graduate degrees in my family. I'm the youngest and I was the first. My parents pushed education. So it came time to graduate. 
We gave them the details, invite them to come down to the graduation. And they're like, ah, that's too much trouble. We'd rather just spend the money we'd spend on plane tickets, and we'll just buy you something that you guys need, and we won't come. We really want you to come. We will pay for your tickets to come. Too much effort. They're the ones who push education. And the first of their five children to get a graduate degree is just a little too much trouble to get down to Dallas. A year later, my brother Tom graduates with the second graduate degree in our family from Trinity Divinity School, the seminary for the Evangelical Free Church, our denomination. It is about 40 minutes away from our home. So I came down to watch him get his degree because I was excited for my brother. I'm very proud of him. 40 minutes was worth the effort. And I sat with my father right here. And as I watched my brother receive his degree, I saw nothing but pride in my father's eyes for my brother. Pride that I did not get a year prior because Dallas was too far to go to. I do not know the joy of a father who delighted in me. But I watched it as he delighted in my brother. And I delighted in my brother also. Very accomplished man. But you know what this text says? It says not only that he's not ashamed to call us, that, uh, to be our God, but he has prepared a city for us. The ultimate expression of delight in his children, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And we hear reference to that city. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Can you just imagine that if God was pleased to be able to say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what it will be like when God makes his presence known in the holy city among all of the redeemed of the ages. And he says, I am proud to be your God. I delight to be your God. I find joy in being your God because you are mine. I am not the least bit ashamed of you. And I will dwell in your midst. Imagine the joy. God will dwell with us. And he will identify with us in this city that he is preparing. You ever wonder what Jesus is thinking? We hear it at funerals, right? I go to prepare a place for you. I will wonder about what's in Jesus' mind as he's preparing a place for Vernon. Seriously, right? 
the delight that he has to prepare something that I know this will be a blessing to Vernon Gunderson. He's been faithful, a faithful servant all these years. How cool is that to consider? And how many people here that he's individually making preparations for you with a personal touch? Talk about those boxes that have something that touches those kids, something that is significant to them, something specific for them. We prayed for that. God building into that place he's preparing for us, something specific that he will just delight to be our God and we will delight to be in his presence and be his children. Is that not magnificent? Friends, I'm holding out for that. I didn't get that from my father. But I hold on to the hope I will get it from my heavenly father. And that gives me joy. And that tells me it's worth continuing to seek him. Some of you here don't know the pleasure of your father also. Some of you would share that with me and say, yeah, my dad never affirmed me in any way. But God is at work. And he says, look, here's what, here's what we're going to start this thing. Believe that I am as I've revealed myself and believe that I'm well intended towards you. And then let's work on this relationship and you will see that is true. May God free us each from the woundings we perhaps have received in the past to find wholeness in him. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are pleased with us as we seek you. You desire to build into our lives as we seek you, the very creator God of the universe. Thank you, Father, that you've said you're not ashamed of us. But you want to be identified with us, so much so that you're making peculiar and particular places for us as individuals. Thank you for that, Lord. And may that hope fill our hearts today. And Father, I pray for any of us here, myself included, who have had deep woundings because our own relationship with our father or our parents did not provide these things as we needed them. I pray, Father, we will cling to that hope of what we have in Jesus Christ and what will be ours one day that we might continue to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.